Today, we're going to be talking about The Evil Within, uh, developed by Tango Tango Softwork? No, but Beth- published by Bethesda Softworks, developed by Tango something something. Gameworks? I got this right. Gameworks. Gameworks. Yeah. yeah. Same kind of base crew as some of the early Resident Evil games, yeah? I think I, the only name I know for sure that's connected to the early games is Shinji Mikami, who directed evil within and also directed uh the early resident evil games i think he went through okay. four did he also do five i do not believe he did five that's the one that i always forget i don't remember if he also did five if he was complicit in that right from the get-go i know we, we have very uh diverse opinions on this game and i think this might be the first episode ever where i kind of am in, in love with something and pretty much everybody else hates it. And I'm very excited for this. I wish you could see my face, because I'm really excited for this. We can see your face. She's very excited. I don't know. I would say, right off the bat, I, I don't know that I would say I hated it. But for full context there, I I didn't play it. I I watched I watched it. Um, I tried to play it. I couldn't get through the crazy guy with the uh, in the in the asylum at the very beginning. And I said, um, nope, fuck this noise, going back to the Let's Play. Uh, it's probably about as scary as the game ever got. See, I, don't know, I remember seeing some stuff, like, later on, where I remember being kind of freaked out by it. But again, as we've established... Right, your your bar is... is my bar is lower. low. I, I don't like this kind of stuff. I just... <laughs> we just keep making you do it. <laughs> you know, it's almost as though there's some obligation that I have that causes me to, to be forced to play and watch and read scary stuff like this once a year every year <laughs> weird i gotta find something that i like that all of you hate <laughs> force uh, that upon everybody every let's say every okay. june <laughs> just yeah okay i don't know i mean you did have us read wind up bird chronicles and i did go a little bit insane for a period of time that was, I mean, that you're, was you're also reading the book <laughs> while no one well well going through your own period of mini solitude yeah i'm just saying foist foisting of unwanted feelings achieved james well but you didn't know that you were going to... but even it's just then, like method acting yeah even then all right so i'll take one we're just That's... very dedicated method reading method reading <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess you're not wrong uh i don't know i mean like i feel like that's not like vengeance achieved though right like i'm i'm the least offensive one on the list i guess yeah also that's true you weren't complicit in last year's shenanigans although last year's shenanigans were entirely your fault you know, we've discussed this you can check the tape there's no no physical evidence that i, <laughs> I had any i had anything to do with that it's your word against mine my word and cleo's mm-hmm. that's true yeah so anyway Evil Within. Yeah. <laughs> this is how much I want to talk about Evil Within. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk about <laughs> Evil Within, but I feel like I feel like I need to give my backstory on this and why we came to play this game because <laughs> it's 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 not 100% usual. I have a spiritual connection with this game <laughs> because 
Oh, I, f- sound- I feel stupid saying this already, but it's just, like, I have to, like, talk about it. Um, I suggested this originally when I, and I don't have memory of this, really, but there is text evidence that I typed these words and they were sent out to the group. Um, I went through a pretty weird time when I was having a lot of dental procedures done. I had a root canal and, like, several other things happened. Uh, and as a result, I was very stressed out every time I went to the dentist so this time I just like I maybe took a little bit too much Xanax before going in. Um and then when I came out, I apparently messaged everyone being like, Okay, we need to do a series of episodes that's just completely based off of like my dental uh journey and like all the pain that I am feeling. And so like let's do like body horror, I think I said, right? Like some kind of like some kind of body horror and we're gonna like watch Saw and um read like a clockwork orange or something and play the evil within because also around this time i i don't know if any of you have ever had a root canal it is incredibly painful yeah uh, that's my understanding and yeah it's the most pain i've ever been in in the entirety of my existence and i could not get out of bed and so i just watched markiplier's let's play of the evil within and enjoyed myself thoroughly because I could relate to all the gore and suffering. So, and also because I was in this altered state of mind, I formed some kind of deep bond with this game uh, that probably makes me completely biased in a, like, really horrifically irrational way. So that's where I, the place I'm coming from. So can I ask, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this into a slight interview format. I've, I've got my tea here. I'm going to go and we're going to say. He did so, cross <laughs> his legs very primly. I did. So can I ask, when you were deciding what Let's Play to watch, why did you pick The Evil Within? Like, in in that moment, what about it spoke to you? Was it that you felt that you could relate to just the craziness, to the evil within, so to speak? Or was it just, like, total random chance? It seems like a really dangerous one to pick, right? Particularly when you're kind of hopped up on pain meds. I could see that going one of two ways, right? Like, either you really connect to it, or it just, like really pushes you over the edge and you just break as a human i think like i was kind of i kind of wanted to test myself i was like i've never been in this much pain before physically emotionally i was starting to really suffer because i couldn't like do anything and i think i wanted just to see like okay if i do this it might completely break me as a human and if i survive it then i'll know that i'm stronger (laughs) than i think i am so it was a way of testing my own metal. And also, like, I am a fan of Markiplier. And if I'm depressed about, like, something in life, I tend to watch, like, goofy Let's Plays to make myself feel better. And so this kind of satisfied, like, the the mix of his goofiness and, like, my anguish kind of made, like, met perfectly in the Evil Within playthrough. And I was like, this is everything I'm experiencing right now. Let's just, like, watch however many hours, many, many hours of this thing there there are. And ever since then, I have been a diehard Evil Within fan. All right, fair enough. That was that was my big question. That's that was always the one part of that story that that I really I was really confused about. Because <laughs> that would be my fear, right? Is that you would go in and you'd be like, oh yeah, so I'm gonna watch like this Evil Within Let's Play, and just next time we'd see you, you would have just like chained yourself to the bed and wrapped your head in barbed wire. And that just would have been. I like... mean, Halloween is still coming up, guys. <laughs> oh, Jesus, 
please don't wrap yourself in barbed wire for Halloween. We might need to have a talk at that point. I'm dedicated method playing in that case. Fandom fandom needs limits. Immersive experiences. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so... And then I, yeah, I guess I just decided I must inflict this upon all of you. And I think also one of the reasons I wanted you guys to play this was because I know that I'm coming from a completely weird, and I'm, I like, part of me is joking about this, but part of me is definitely not. Like, I connected very deeply with this game in a weird way. And I think it's not so much what the game is itself. It's more about, like, what my relationship to that game is, which I know will completely color my experience in a certain way. And I wanted a more objective opinion on the game, which is why I thought, hey, you guys could play it and tell me I'm totally batshit crazy and, like, you're, Cleo's not allowed to pick games anymore. What is it that really, <laughs> like, connected with you for Evil Within? Is that something that you can talk about pre-spoilers? Like, beyond... Was it really just the pain? Um, It was... Okay, so... The level of, like, the way that was whole, the whole game is marketed is like, oh, it's a huge gore fest and, like, all this stuff. And generally, that's not my type of thing. Um, like, I I like scary things, but, like, just kind of over-the-top violence and gore tends not to do it for me. I'm much more of, like, in the Silent Hill, like, creepy atmosphere camp. Although, not to say that Silent Hill does not have, like, horrific gore. But um, that's the part of Silent Hill that does it more for me. And... So I was kind of, this was one of the first times where I was really into a game that was like super, super, super gory, um, just for the sake of being gory. And I think part of it also, yeah, was kind of like cathartic in a way, just because I was like seeing my physical internal pain externalized in a way. Um, and also, I know, like, the story is totally kind of, like, convoluted and, like, does not make sense and stuff, which is another reason why I say that I'm kind of more in love with my relationship to the game than the game itself, because I filled in a lot of blanks. Well, again, this could partially be somewhat of a hallucination during my, uh, my watching of the Let's Play because of the circumstances under which I watched it, but I, um, I really liked some parts of the story um very much so even though a lot of them were kind of like you know cliched or what not um but they spoke to me on a deep level at the time and i liked the potential for it i don't think it was realized exactly in the way that i would you know call perfect or like even great but i like a lot of mind bendy things as well and there's a lot of kind of inception-y type things that are happening in this game um Again, you know, if I'm trying to be objective about this, not executed perfectly, but definitely spoke to me on a level that not all games do. So prior to this, had you been a fan of Mikami's work? Like, have you played a lot of the Resident Evil games? I know you specifically mentioned Silent Hill, but I mean, I know that we mentioned that uh, Mikami had worked on those early Resident Evils. And that was one of the big things that I remembered when this came out was that it seemed like it was being marketed as, and a lot of the like critical reception was like, this is the the Resident Evil game that you've kind of been waiting for. Whether or not it was a like a really good one, sort of was all over the board. But if you were really hoping for that series to return to its actual like survival horror roots, as opposed to being just kind of like the weird action game that was five and just kind of the hot mess that was six, 
like so it did you have like a history with specifically his work or was it really just this one that was the first one that had grabbed you it's been a long time since i played any of the resident evil games and i did like i do remember liking them a lot um but i don't know if they were games that i even completed and i definitely did not play like five onward not for like any like reason in particular just that i never like got around to it um so this i mean this was kind of very much i think i decided to approach evil within before i knew like the team behind it even so it was kind of more of like a surprise then and then i saw it immediately like i saw the influence there for sure but it, it was kind of a separate thing follow-up have you played shadows of the damned the shinji mikami slash uh oh god what's who was the other guy um, I, I don't know because bizarrely enough it in a million ways these are very different things but more than any other thing Shadows of the Damned is the the game that this reminded me of, which is weird because Shadows of the Damned is a lot of the just weird nonsense elements and not necessarily the any of the thoughtful stuff, but then with just like a bunch of dick jokes. It, uh, familiar, it was Suda, yeah. by the way. Oh, really? It was Koichi Suda? Yeah. yeah, nailed it. <laughs> I'm familiar with it. Um, I haven't played it. If anyone's looking for, like, Shadows of uh, Evil Within, but with dick jokes, uh, Shadows of the Damned. I'm definitely not looking for that. Or anything <laughs> like Evil Within. At all. Justin's opinion of me just, like, dropped immensely. <laughs> uh, God, this game. I hated everything about this game. I really did. Yeah, so I guess for context, uh, Justin and I played through the game together until we got to about two-thirds of the way through and just stopped. Um, uh, Justin primarily played, I primarily watched, but he handed the controller off to me, you know, like when he got stuck, needed some help. Yeah, and generally around boss fights or big encounters when like yeah. luck would just not go my way whatsoever. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I got incredibly lucky every single time I played the game and fumbled my way through all of the fights in almost one try, like each time. I don't know what happened. Despite it was really never funny. remembering the controls. No, every single time I was like, how the fuck do I play this game? Jesus. And it would be like me like accidentally shooting guns when I didn't mean to and like like forgetting which was crouch and which was run turning my lantern on and off a bunch it was bad <laughs> I admittedly know. i don't understand how it worked <laughs> admittedly i think i enjoyed watching the let's play more than i enjoyed playing the game because i am fearful and the game right from the get-go it's like when you're trying to choose which mode of difficulty you want to play in it's like oh casual for like the weak and cowardly and i was like Oh, so you're going to insult me. Now I have to do, like, survival mode. Survival mode lasted for, like, five minutes, and I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was like, ah, the weak and cowardly. That's the one for me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Sounds so good, game. <laughs> we played on survivor mode. Yeah. Mostly because I, Justin was trying to get a trophy. Yeah, I was trying to... I, I looked at the way the trophies worked for this game, and I was like, okay, it's it's a couple of playthroughs. The way it's talked about, it's not all that difficult. Uh, you know, I might as well gun for it. And so the first playthrough, we were playing it on Survivor difficulty, and we weren't getting any of the upgrades. <laughs> um, and that worked fine. For, for a large portion for of the probably game. Probably the first hat, third to half of the game. 
Um, there were points that were frustrating or whatever, but but it was it was more or less okay. And it it just it snowballed in how aggressively frustrating everything about the game was. And I think the moment we came, the moment we were closest to being done before we actually quit was a particular boss fight that was just it felt like it was designed to be in a different game. Yeah. So as someone who does play a lot of things for trophies, do you think that it did you ever stop uh not getting upgrades? Did you start spending the the gel? Yeah. So the, the it just hit a point where like I knew that like I was sitting there and I was talking to Corinne and Corinne's like, Are you really going to play this two more times yeah. to get all the trophies? And I just like thought for half a second and I was like, There's no fucking way that I'm picking this game up again after this playthrough. Mm-hmm. And so then the next time I got to the save room, I spent like all 170,000 gel or whatever it was that we I had. We very particular about collecting all of the gel we came across, despite yeah. the fact we weren't planning on using it. Like you need it for one of the other trophies, so that makes sense. But um, I don't know. We just And so I don't know if it translates to New Game Plus. I guess it probably does. Uh, but anyway, so I was, I was getting it all. And and then I just pumped it all into like magazine sizes, ammo stocks, health movement. Yeah, like I, I maxed no the sprint, punching, I maxed the health, I maxed no punching damage, which I was very upset about. I was yeah. upset you didn't even touch melee damage. We play in two very different ways. Yeah, you punch literally everything all yes. the time. Yes, and guess who got through all the challenges and overall conserved the most ammo and resources? Yeah, because you. That's fine. You punched everything all the time. How much, how many shotgun shells and pistol bullets did you have to not pick up because you already had them? Not many, because I kept handing the controller back to you and you would spend them all. The game gives you more than enough ammo. Yeah. So that was going to be kind of my follow-up question there. Do you think that you would have enjoyed the game more had you been kind of upgrading at the pace that the game sort of sets you out to upgrade as you went? Or do you think that part of... and that some of that frustration then maybe came because you were playing at a, a moderate difficulty with an, an additional self-imposed handicap. Do you think that added to the frustration? I, I mean, I'm sure it did at points. I'm going to conjecture that if we had been upgrading in pace with the game, we might have actually been able to finish it without being like overwhelmed by frustration. But the game itself has problems beyond that beyond what was caused by not grabbing upgrades that were just not good like yeah i'm like fundamental design stuff and i mean this game is already two years old and the primary criticism that i have seen levied against it by others as well is that it's a game that feels like five years out of date like that it is a game that would have been good five years before it came out, but the kinds of design ideas and advancements that have become more prevalent since the, you know, the late aughts is, or like make it so that this game is, is less interesting and playable as a product of its own time. Um, like, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Like the one specific one was, uh, it was Polygon's review and, Phil Kohler was like, uh, this is the game that Resident Evil 5 should have been, but it also feels like a game that only could have worked if it came out when when Resident Evil 5 came out. (laughs) Like, the game just, like, 
Resident Evil 5 came out five years prior to this game, and that this game would have worked in 2009, and by 2014, it felt dated. Even by, even, like, putting questions of, like, like game design aside, there were still problems. Like, oh, yeah, the I mean, sound if, design if you put the design was... aside, like, almost everything oh, about the geez. design is flawed in various degrees, and then the story is just, like, nonsense. Yes. Uh, sorry, Cleo. Very sorry, but... We have a lot of problems with this game. Fine. A lot. I feel like I'm pleasantly in the middle then. <laughs> it, I've got to say, even sound design-wise, like, again, it having, like, mainly, like, watched it watched this as someone else playing it. And uh, for context, the Let's Play that I watched was explicitly a no-commentary Let's Play. It's, it's yeah, just, it's the only way I'd be able to. Um, uh, which I thought was really interesting, because getting the sound design from that, I thought there were a lot of moments where... And again, like you lose stuff like um, to what degree the just the actual software is doing a good job of giving you information about the environment via its sound design, which uh, based on some off mic conversations we've had was some of the issue. That's more or less the primary issue. Like I will say the, the actual sound design as in the design of the sounds that are in the game yeah. is great. Yeah. See, that was that was my big thing when when you first mentioned that you you didn't like the sound design. I remember thinking that I explicitly really liked the sound design. But the again, I was themselves. playing kind of a flattened. Yeah. It's, I guess not sound design, sound and er, the sound audio engineering. Yeah. Right? I, the the implementation of the audio within the game, not the actual design of the audio itself. Yeah. The way Corinne has put it is probably the best. We're like, we're probably a little spoiled by Overwatch. We've been playing a ton of Overwatch since it came out pretty consistently with small breaks. And in terms of like like sound engineering and the implementation of audio design for portraying information to the player, like vital information to the player, I don't think I've ever played a game better at it than Overwatch. And in a survival horror game where sound conveying information could be incredibly important, this game utterly and improbably fails at yeah, it. Like you have like no chance in hell of trying to locate an enemy based off of sounds around you. Like there were so many times where like we were creeping through like town scapes and like coming to closed doors and we would hear sounds and we're like, like literally right next to you. Mm. And like, it, like it sounds like if I open this door, there will be an enemy. And then we've opened the door and there's been nothing. It's like the next guy is like 30 feet away up on a hill to the left. Yeah. Like, do you think that, uh, just to purely to play devil's advocate, do you think that that might have been intentional? Do you think it was a bug? There have been if a few it was intentional, it was really fucking dumb. It's like <laughs> in my mind, it could have been intentional in the way that the movement controls for Castellanos are terrible, and therefore intentional in the way it was in the original Resident Evil. Where like what made that game tense was the fact that it was difficult to move and control your character, and that was sure. partly a product of the time and partly a. a an intentional design decision Mm -hmm. to create a feeling within players in that game. Yeah. And I can understand that to one at like in one hand, but in the other hand, that's not good enough in 2014. Like uh, maybe if it was done better or, or in a way where it's, it's made to feel like that, if there, if it like, it's never, your auditory hallucinations, like auditory problems aren't, any part of the game or any part of the game narrative for 
as, as a player, like maybe there's cutscene stuff, but as you as a player are never faced with a point where it's like, ooh, audio stuff is happening. What does this mean for the state of my character and like where I'm at in the narrative? Not there at all. So if you're fucking around with the audio just during combat scenes or sne- or stealth scenes for no reason, like why why are you doing this to me? Just let me know where my enemies are because this isn't relevant at all to the narrative you're trying to convey. So part of the reason why I asked that is because we had talked a little bit again uh, yesterday off mic where you described uh, sequence Corinne where you had said that it actually ended up being genuinely kind of frightening, but you weren't sure whether it was intentional or not, that you thought it might have just been um, uh, a visual glitch. Oh, yeah, that was. Oh, it was you, Justin? Yeah, that was me. It was Sorry, uh, we're all talking together. There's there's just a a point in one of the mental hospital sequences where you're going through the hallway and it's dark and there's side rooms and I, there's one room I went into and I was going to all of them to try and make sure there wasn't any loot or anything like that. And I, I went in and I was a, a drawer to open and there was a corpse on the ground and I opened the drawer. Like I could see it and the corpse was in vision when you go to the drawer mm-hmm. and it was looking up, like, you know, it was lying on its back on the ground looking up and I opened the drawer, grabbed the ammo out. When I shut the drawer, it was gone. And this was early on, and we had already been laughing at about 80% of what had been happening in the game. Yeah. But then in that moment, when it was dark and my lantern wasn't on, and we were in the creepy hospital and that, we were like, okay, that was actually like mildly creepy. And then we thought about it for half a second, and we're like, it was probably unintentional, but it was mildly creepy. Like, it felt more like it was a bug than it wasn't, than an unintentional thing. And so part of the reason why I wanted to bring this up is, uh, I didn't necessarily remember that, but again, as someone who was watching it, I don't necessarily have any guarantee that the the person who was playing the game that i was watching uh even like went into that room to find that drawer right so i wanted to ask you cleo uh as someone who's gone through the game a couple times now both watching it and playing it do you remember the sequence because i was actually really curious about trying to figure out whether this is um something like that particularly because uh being in that hospital right where sometimes it's also your your safe space that they intrude upon pretty regularly Right, but uh, it sounds like that would have been one of the early intrusions on that safe space, based on when you kind of said it was in the game. So I was wondering, Cleo, if you would come across that at all uh, to see if that to try and get a sense of whether that was a glitch or if it was maybe something that that was sort of slipped in there that was kind of successful. I don't recall that, so I'm thinking that was a glitch. Um, I could be that, like, also there's like a lot of stuff that goes on, so I might have just forgotten. But I don't remember. I don't have any distinct memory of that. Yeah, one of the reasons why I was kind of curious is that just in general, that idea of um, a safe space in a survival horror game, I mean, uh, setting aside the fact that just, I mean, Mikami is, really is the progenitor of the survival horror genre, right? Like, Resident Evil 1 is the, the game that coined that term. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I will I will say, I think we might be getting our wires crossed, because I'm not talking about the save, the literal save room. One which of is the, the only which is just... the only safe space I can think of. It's like one of the times that you go back to the hospital oh, like, oh. after like the mental hospital that you're in in the first part of the game. One Got of the it. one of the many times you get sent back there to Got creep it. through and deal with creepy, awful hospital, moving wheelchairs, invisible enemies, that place. Got it. Okay. Sorry, yeah, no, I did I thought that you were talking about um the Although... the, the hospital that is your you're like save room slash upgrade. The the right creepy area. stuff happening in the safe space stuff that those were some of the more successful sequences, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, I do want to talk about that, but in the spoiler yeah, section, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about I, that later. Specifics I want to go into. There's more to talk about now. That's <laughs> in fair. Pre-spoiler yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's fine. And then I'll I'll save my my diversion into one yeah. of the things that I thought was really cool about the fact that they cut into that as frequently as they do. 
Um, yeah. Because Resident Evil, known for really being, I think one of the big things that Resident Evil pioneered is that idea of giving you that safe space in a scary game and playing yeah. that. The uh, typewriter rooms. Yeah, exactly. And like that piano music plays and. Yep. Yeah. But, that is. Well, one of, one of the other like main complaints that uh, came up a lot between Justin and me while we were playing was the detrimental effect of the complete lack of like coherent narrative. Did I say all the words I needed to say in that sentence? Pretty much. Weird. Okay. Um, just like, so in, in the game and I'll, I'll be as general as possible. The character is moved a lot around between various locations and you're really never quite sure what is going on. Or, I mean, at a certain point you can understand why this is happening, but you have no real way of saying, okay, this is where I want to be next. You're just sort of arbitrarily moved from set piece to set piece and you really have nothing to do but it, but walk forward because, you know, you can't turn around, you can't look behind you, you can't control at all where you're going or what you're doing. And in some, in some places it works. Yeah. Like a lot of the times when, when like gravity will invert itself or, or screw up and, and, and Castellanos would like fall through the area he's in and then end up somewhere else and gravity would write itself. Like it happened a couple of times. And I think both times it was like sending him back to the mental hospital. But both of those times I thought it, it worked and it, it, it that had been sort of established as almost a more central setting for obvious reason for reasons that would be that will be obvious later um but more often than not the the places to which sebastian is being like dispatched there's just not enough connective tissue it's just like okay i'm going to leave the save room oh i'm in a sunny village when immediately prior to this, I was in a, a dark other village. Okay, well, I'm just going to keep going. And you keep going, you do some stuff, and then you end up back in the mental hospital, and then you end up somewhere else, and then you get thrown somewhere else, and thrown somewhere else, and thrown somewhere else. And it's never, there's never, like, it's just short of making it coherent. Like, it obviously in games, you rarely have agents, actual agency over where you go. Like, a lot of games are linear, a lot of stories are not open. And all of that's fine, but it doesn't feel like the character, like the character himself doesn't necessarily need to have agency either, especially in a game like this, but there just needs, there needs to be something. And it we, never feels like there's anything. We it's had just... gotten enough of the story to understand why this was happening. And it was still very frustrating. There, there's a certain point where characters like, Hey, you'd better beat the antagonist to this location or else everything's going to be bad. And it's like, well, Sure, I would love to be able to go to a location, but I can't. I literally have no way to go anywhere. I can't I can't do anything about that. Sorry, guy. Yeah. I guess the apocalypse is coming because I can't control anything I do. I have a I do have a question for both of you since you have such strong negative feelings. Well, actually, no. I guess this applies mainly to Justin, but Corinne potentially also. Uh okay. do you hate the evil within more than you hate Armada? <laughs> Um, is this is this your least favorite thing we've ever done? It might be. All right, here's, oh my here's god! Really? Would you read Armada again or play The Evil Within again? Read Armada again. There. All right. Oh, see, I don't, I don't wow. know that that's a fair question because I think it the playing the thing, of the, the thing, thing is, is much more 
it's my, uh, yeah. Listen, evil within is incredibly frustrating and, and difficult to deal with and annoying and, and any number of other things. Armada is like kind of painful to read, but it's not a like thoroughly unenjoyable experience. Oh, see, I even think it's a thoroughly unenjoyable experience, but it's, you know, two, three hundred well-spaced pages, whereas, like, there are even games that I liked where I would rather read Armada again than play them again. (laughs) All right, how about this? Even though I liked them, it was like, wow, that took a lot out of me, and that was a commitment. Yeah. How about, would you rather read Armada again or play The Evil Within for as much time as you would be reading Armada again? Would, okay, that's fair. I would yeah. still probably rather read Armada again. Okay. I, yeah, I, I I disliked Armada greatly, and I don't like. There's there isn't really anything that can redeem it. And I think on the whole, I I I do think I dislike Armada more than I dislike Evil Within, but I dislike the playing of Evil Within more than I dislike the reading of Armada. It's much Makes easier sense. to find minimal enjoyment in a book mm. that is not that good than it is to find enjoyment in a game that is not well designed. Like playing yeah. a poorly designed game is more frustrating than just about anything I've ever done. Interesting. All right, how about you, Corinne? I haven't read Armada. Oh, that's right. That was pre. Yeah. I forgot about that. I haven't been here the whole time, but, uh, I, you know, it feels like you have, you're just, you're a real, you're a real <laughs> part of the family now. I'm, uh, really the, the bedrock that holds it all together. I think, I think yeah. I could safely say that after what, like four months, <laughs> <laughs> however long it's been. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting. I hadn't even thought about it in, in that context. So I yes, like to bring I, the chaos. Into Armada the... is worse than that evil within, but I would rather read Armada again than play evil within again. Okay. I accept that. And I just want to be clear, like, this doesn't make me think less of you as a person because I I, ha- I have specifically recommended this game to a friend of mine who I know is a big fan of Resident Evil. And I was like, listen, just, you know, Justin and I hated this game. It's got problems, but you still might like it because you're a fan of this sort of thing. So I'm actually interested to see what he says about it. If, yeah, same. Because he did specifically ask me to, like... He was like, hey, what was that game you were talking about again? I was like, oh, you know, The Evil Within. So I think he is actually going to look it up and, and at least attempt it. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what what he says, like what feelings he has about it. Because, uh, I don't know, he might be the right kind of person to enjoy the game that Justin and I just aren't. Yeah. There's one moment I'm going to complain about explicitly. Uh, which is very early on in the game, so I think it's fine for this portion. Um, Shinji Mikami takes the zombie reveal from Resident Evil and fucking does it again. I was so mad. Like there's there's send ups, and there's and there's references, and then there like this is almost like the the biblical stuff in Jacob's Ladder, like not bothering you as much mm. if it had right, like yeah. it. This is just dumb and ridiculous. And part of why I think so is that, like, it's it's nothing but pure 
fan service that to me falls completely flat. Like if somebody was, if somebody who was not Shinji Mikami was making a survival horror game and saying like, we want to try to make our own resident evil. And they put that moment in there as sort of like a send up of the thing that inspired them. I would understand it wouldn't really bother me, but for Shinji Mikami, the guy who directed resident evil to be like, let's do it again. Let's I'm making something that's not resident evil. Let's do it again. It's like fucking why? What is the point? I was so, and I realized it's completely irrational, but I was like, so like, and just for whatever reason, it, it got to you. Yeah. yeah it was just, it, that's a valid. Cause it's not even like, not even angry. I just like, I've never, I can't remember the last time I looked at something and it was just like, wow, that was just, that was really dumb and, and unnecessary. So before we get too much further into anything, do we want to, do we want to shift over into spoilers so we can, yeah, we can get some, a good idea. we can get some evidence going on up in here. We'll, we'll give Cleo a chance to, uh, defend herself. <laughs> just kidding. Or just just, kidding. just <laughs> give someone just, a chance to say talk. good things about the game in general. <laughs> yeah. Just, just give a little perspective on what might be good about it. I think even more so than that, but to speak specifically about some of the moments that you were sort of alluding to earlier that you said you, you didn't want to. Right. Get into it. I'm actually really excited to hear about. I do just want to say, like, just in general, I know I just mentioned it, but I would I would tentatively recommend this game to, like, a hardcore Resident Evil fan. You might get something out of it. I will say, as someone who considers themselves not quite a hardcore fan, but a a big fan of the Resident Evil games, I still hated it. Okay. So there there are there exist people who might like this game. It got it got really good good ratings on most yeah, platforms. Yeah, generally good reviews. So we we are in the minority apparently. Yeah. Between both users and critics. I say if you are experiencing more pain than you ever have felt in your entire life and you are having a complete emotional physical and spiritual crisis, then maybe you will have a religious experience with this game as I did. <laughs> Uh, and if you're someone like me, baby, you don't play it, but you want to watch a uh, commentary free walkthrough and have it all just be like, you know, pretty okay and you sort of appreciate it and it has some creepy moments and those make you uncomfortable and you can't say you like it but it seems effective enough uh yeah then that's going to be your experience if you're me um which makes it really hard to recommend or not recommend to anyone um (laughs) unless you are james and i don't think he's going to recommend it to himself so yeah uh shout out to mk ice fire something like that uh it, who did the commentary-free uh, Let's Play that I did. Hard to say I can speak much to that person's personality or whatever, but... <laughs> but for that, you are appreciative. Yeah, you know, not a lot of people do commentary-free Let's Plays. And I think, you know, props to props to people who are going and making that content. Because I think it takes a certain amount of courage to not try and put yourself in the spotlight there. And so, you know, <laughs> good on you. I I like it. Nice job. Um Everyone go out, like, comment, subscribe on those videos or something. (laughs) I don't remember how YouTube works. Uh, Can we call this spoiler break? Yeah. We should probably call this spoiler break. Spoiler break. It's been 42 minutes. Yeah. So this is going to be our spoiler break. I'm excited to get back into this after our our brief summary aside. But before we do that, everyone keep in mind, next up, we're going to be getting into our topic episode where we are going to be bringing all of these things together. We're going to be talking about Stephen King's The Shining. We're going to be talking about Jacob's Ladder. We're going to be talking more about Evil Within. Uh, that might end up being the episode that has a bunch of the stuff where we compare the imagery in Jacob's Ladder to The Evil Within because we talked a lot about this already. So we'll see if we've got time for that today. Stay tuned. 
after that, we're going to be getting into our sci-fi noir series with Altered Carbon as the book, and then Blade Runner as the film, and then Gemini Rue as the game. So that'll be fun as well. But for now, we're going to cut to Cleo for a summary. Yay! The Evil Within is marketed as a survival horror game, but really it's kind of a cross between survival horror and action. You play as Detective Sebastian Castellanos, a brooding, stoic, alcoholic, tough guy with a tragic past. The game opens on Sebastian and his colleagues, Joseph Oda and Julie Kidman, as they're called to investigate a situation at Crimson City's Beacon Mental Hospital. Joseph is a young, by-the-books detective whom Sebastian generally trusts and gets along with, while Julie is a rookie whose aloof personality puts a strain on her working relationship with both of them. The situation at Beacon Mental Hospital turns out to be a horrific mass murder with both patients and staff as the victims. While investigating, Sebastian sees security footage of a hooded man who is covered in burn scars slaughtering other police officers with ease even as they fire at him. The man then looks directly at Sebastian through the camera, disappears, then reappears behind him and attacks him. Sebastian wakes up a captive of a hideous butcher-type character with a chainsaw and a gore-filled version of the hospital, and has to escape through a corridor of spinning blades that eventually dumps him in a giant vat of blood. Exploration of this new world confirms that this is some twisted, sinister, and at times physically impossible version of Crimson City that is populated by zombie-like creatures called the Haunted. After escaping a crumbling Crimson City, Sebastian finds himself in a strange village crawling with the Haunted. He runs into Dr. Jimenez from Beacon Hospital, who is looking for his patient, Leslie Withers, and Sebastian spends the vast majority of the game chasing after Leslie. Along the way, he encounters the menacing hooded figure again and learns that his name is Ruvik. Ruvik appears to be invincible, has some degree of control over the environment, and can disappear and reappear with ease. This nightmare world seems to be built on Ruvik's memories combined with those of the people trapped there, with all of it of course, contorted by Ruvik's sadistic personality. As Sebastian chases Leslie, is reunited and then separated from Julie and Joseph, and survives encounters with the various monsters, he learns more and more about Ruvik and how this world came to be. Ruvik's true name is Ruben Victoriano, and though he was an incredibly intelligent child and born into a wealthy family, he had cruel tendencies and would experiment on animals. Dr. Jimenez became a sort of mentor for him, despite being somewhat disturbed by Ruben's behavior. Ruben's only friend was his older sister, Laura. One day while playing in a barn, however, a group of local men who were angry with their parents set fire to the structure, and Ruben only barely managed to survive because Laura saved him before perishing herself. This explains why Laura, who appears several times throughout the game as a monster, is greatly weakened by fire. After years of being neglected by his father and kept in the manor's basement because of his burn wounds, Ruben murdered his parents and continued his partnership with Dr. Jimenez, giving money to Beacon Mental Hospital in exchange for patients he could use as test subjects for his experiments on the human brain and psyche. With Beacon's assistance, Ruben built a machine called STEM, which could allow many people to link minds. Ruben hoped that this machine would allow him to create another life in which he could be with Laura again, but Jimenez betrayed this increasingly unstable Ruben throwing him to his shadowy employers. They tortured Ruben the same way he tortured his subjects and stripped him down to just his brain, which they then used to run STEM. We also learn more about Sebastian's own tragic past as he finds his journal entries scattered throughout the world. He fell in love with his partner, Myra, and they got married and had a daughter. 
Joseph became his new partner then, and all was relatively well for a time until Sebastian's daughter and her nanny were killed in a fire. Shortly after that, Myra disappeared, and though everyone believes she left Sebastian, he thinks that there is a more complicated reason for her vanishing. Sebastian learns that Ruvik's goal now is to use Leslie as a host for his consciousness so he can return to the real world. He also discovers that Julie has her own mysterious reasons for wanting to catch Leslie, and even has to stop her from shooting Leslie at one point, though this causes her to shoot Joseph instead. Throughout all of this, Julie has been the only one to seemingly be unaffected by Rubik's powers, whereas Joseph has nearly transformed into one of the haunted several times, and Sebastian himself had his own close call. Finally back at the hospital, Sebastian sees that he and everybody else is hooked up to Stem and Rubik's brain. Julie warns Sebastian that it would be catastrophic if Ruvik escaped using Leslie as a vessel. Ruvik manages to dissolve Leslie and later transforms into a giant monster made up of all the other monsters Sebastian has encountered so far. Upon defeating it, Sebastian wakes up in the real world and sees Leslie walking away as a SWAT team arrives at the hospital. The implication being that Leslie is now really Ruvik, who is now free in the world and potentially still has some control over those he was connected to in STEM. Alright, thank you very much for that summary, Cleo. So, now that we are into the official spoiler section, I don't know, who has who has the most specific moment? I want to talk about safe spaces and, like, the safe rooms. Yes. But I can wait. I don't, do we want to get in that right away? Uh, do you want to... We could talk about the moment that we quit the game. Uh, Does it happen in... Let's... I'm going to say, let's, like, go back to, like, neutral good and then bad again. Sure. Let's, like, we just we just had a lot of air time. Let's seed the floor for a bit. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about save the save room thing. I mean, because it's yeah. very, I mean, Resident Evil definitely known for the save room thing, right? It's like you're stressed out constantly, and then you get to one of the rooms with a typewriter in it, and you have like yeah, the piano music. I have a whole collection of like just like Resident Evil save room theme songs in my iTunes library because <laughs> I find them both creepy and yeah. soothing at the same time. Um, and the music plays like you know, I feel like a that's huge the role. Yeah. Oh. And real fast, um, the music that plays when you're near a safe room. Clear like, Lune. I very early on associated it with like kind of this like weird ethereal version of On Top of Spaghetti. So that's what I sang every <laughs> single time I every heard it. Every time. <laughs> oh God. Now every time the I hear it. The third time we hit the room that. from then on. Oh boy. <laughs> Just go back and listen to it and then put the words to On Top of Spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, it's... it clicks. Yeah, oh boy. Right. <laughs> but yeah, or, so I guess the other version of that that song, yeah, which is I forget. Corinne, this is no place for dirty songs. It's nothing to do with meatballs. <laughs> this is a respectable podcast. Okay, it's not that bad. <laughs> no, it's not. Anyway, um, but yeah, so the the save rooms. So yeah, uh, Cleo, like what you were saying, where in Resident Evil, I mean, I feel like that was one of the really it's one of the really like genius moments, just things that comes from Resident Evil, right? Is that sense of they do such a good job of knowing how to ease up on that tension. And some of that happened with just some of the goofy characters and you that you get like the Jill sandwich line, right, in, in Resident Evil One, and that's you know, that's pretty goofy. Yeah. But the the real like the real nice thing with that is that they know how to give you that release sometimes. You know, you you go, you find a typewriter room, you get the piano music, you get the option to save. I mean, if, if you want to, you've got ink ribbons, et cetera. But that they they give you that catharsis almost, you know, that release. Um, I thought it was really interesting the way that 
Evil Within did it, because in Resident Evil, you know, those save rooms are still kind of creepy by merit of the fact that they are in the mansion, and the mansion is a creepy place. But Evil Within explicitly puts you in a scary hospital for your, like, safe space. I thought that was a really just interesting decision. It was hard for me to say, like, how I specifically felt about it. Part of me, even watching it, was like, wow, like, I really wish that we could have, like, a neutral ground. Yeah. And it's, it, it feels like it eases up. Just overall, I feel like those safe areas ease up on you a lot less. It's really not that same, like, relaxing catharsis and, like, just deep breath out moment that it could be in, in Resident Evil. Yeah. And you... Like you know that your your character and you know you by extension are physically safe at that moment. You know there aren't going to be any enemies that can kill you or any like real issues like that. But it never really stops being creepy. Like it's creepy when you first get there, and then it sort of eases up a little bit. But then you know the the nurse or whoever does just weird creepy shit randomly when you show up there sometimes, and then like halfway through the game the entire like decor and design of the main room changes permanently, including like a, a family photograph with a face removed that just stays there. Well, and then like you get the bit where even if it's not something directly dangerous that's happening to you, but like the bugs start pouring out of it and you go and you get like Rubik's face for the jump scare that comes in through the hole. Right. And that's, yeah. And then that, that memory that you have associated with it, you know, yeah. is there because that painting never leaves. Yeah. It goes away or anything. And it looks, it still has the hole in it that Rubik's face showed up in. Yeah. And I mean, even like your upgrade method, you sit in a fucking, I don't even know what kind of, I don't know what that is. It's a data. It's some kind of dated, like, I'm like biopsy. Looks like a dentist chair. Like, yeah. Yeah, it does. Like, a, it's like a creepy, like mixing with like a dentist chair and something that you would expect to be used as part of like a lethal injection. Yeah, like it it seems like something that could have been used for like brain something or other. Yeah. But who knows what? Yeah. Yeah. I really I really like having my save room fucked with. Like feeling this is supposed to be a safe space and then just something like really creepy happens in it. Like Leslie shows up and you're like chasing him down a hallway and then he disappears and Yeah, I love the stuff other like that. the creepy neighbor guy in the next room and like, and even I enjoyed like even like the missing persons posters and like the newspapers that would show up on the stand and just things like that. And like at one point, this, it might've honestly just been, I accidentally kicked the wheelchair that was in the room with like all the, uh, lock boxes or like the safes or the lockers rather, the one where you go with the, uh, extra keys. And, but for some reason the wheelchair moved and I thought it was on its own. It could have, might've been me just being clumsy in game, just as I am clumsy in real life. But it really creeped me out because it reminded me of the Invisible Enemies, which I want to talk about later as well. Um, but yeah, like, when you're supposed to be have, like, there's, like, only this one space. And it's already, like, not emotionally very comforting to be there. But you just know, like, okay, like, combat's not going to happen here at least. And then you get messed with in that way. I just, I enjoy having that expectation of a safe space totally just, like, destroyed for me. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's it's really interesting for me to hear you say that you actively enjoy it because that's absolutely the kind of thing where, it, like a lot of scary stuff, I said, I do not enjoy that at all. But 
from like an intellectual perspective, I can look at that and be like, yeah. And the reason I don't enjoy it is because it's really smart, right? Like it, that's a really good way to elicit those kinds of feelings and make, and make me feel uncomfortable, make me feel out of place, make me feel all those things that realistically something that is succeeding should make me feel like that someone, I mean, particularly in a game like this, right? Where the whole idea is that that's kind of like in your head. And that that's that reminder that like Ruvik is getting into your head. Like that's supposed to be that one space that's just for you. But yeah. Yeah. I also really like the choice of Claire de Lune as the save room music. Um, Cause it might just be, <laughs> I have a weird relationship with that song as well. Um, because there, there's like a weird variation of it or a couple weird variations of it that are used in the voltage uh, Otome game which is like a dating sim, uh, My Forged Wedding, which is available on iPhone and I believe Android. Uh, they It's like used as the background music for the game, so I associate that song with just like really lighthearted stuff and just like, you know, ridiculous dating sim stuff. And then to have then when I first encountered it in Evil Within, I was like, oh my god, this is kind of hilarious. That the, like the two games I know this song from are completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Hmm. Isn't, I, was there a segment earlier or early-ish where there is some kind of combat in that area i don't think so no it might have yeah, been i don't think there's any actual combat it, it might have been one of the ones where it's going back to just the the mental hospital and since it's there's like a certain amount of shared like assets and decor between those two yeah it might it might be that i'm mixing those up i i just thought it was really interesting the degree to which they were willing to intrude upon that space in in this game like there's a couple moments like that in even just like the original Resident Evil, if I remember right, like they're they're pretty few and far between though, and it's not a big thing. It's like a zombie, yeah, and it's at a point by which you can deal with a zombie. You just weren't expecting it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what it's one of the interesting things there is about Evil Within. Really, is that they're for in order to to do something creepy or to further something with the plot line, they will readily intrude upon this space that you have come over the the short amount of time you've had with it before this happens that you've come to expect to be the untouched unsoiled place that you have in the game mm. where weird things won't happen you just you get in there you save you open some blockers you upgrade you go back out it's all good maybe you pick up some collectibles nurse says some weird shit but that's that's kind of it yeah and then something goes wrong and then it keeps happening and I thought that was, I I liked that about it. I thought it was very interesting that they would that they would go that route. Hmm. Um, I found it especially eerie when Nurse just disappears and she doesn't come back. That is after we quit, so I was not aware that happened. It happens like forever. <laughs> yeah, she just like there's a her missing post person's poster go, shows up on the wall and she's oh. just gone after you look at it. So she's there until you pick it up. I think uh, that seems to be what I remember. That's actually pretty yeah, cool. That she's, yeah. yeah, she's either, I think it's like you pick up the poster and then she's gone instead of you're there and she's not there at all. And then you look at the poster. That's how I remember it. At least I could be misremembering, but I am curious about what this, what your quitting point was. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Do we want to shift into that? Yeah. So one of the, like, one of the secondary antagonists of the game, I guess, is Lara. Um, 
And when you have the second confrontation with her where you're more or less supposed to just run, it's technically possible to fight and kill her, but realistically you need the rocket launcher, which you can only have at that point in the game if you're playing on New Game Plus. Anyway, um, so this is the portion where you, you run from her and you, you break open all the fire pipes to slow her down and to, to make forward progress, and then you run into the elevator and you go down, right? And then you have cuts like extended cutscene, and then you end up in the parking garage with the giant about like crazy Rubik's mind abomination ruining everything thing, like giant big strong whatever the fuck amalgamation of bodies that I think is supposed to be mildly representative of like the stem itself. Uh, but anyway. So we had this like harrowing, annoying, frustrating thing with Lara, and then we immediately get thrown with well, there was, there few was a few resources. Scene. There was a cutscene, yes. And but you're like, okay, this is where the chapter ends. Yeah. Like, like I was expecting the chapter to end there. Right. And and you you've blown resources trying to deal with Lara, and you get into and you get into this place, and then you're thrown into a you're just thrown into a ridiculously challenging boss fight. A second one. I mean, I, I don't consider Lara a boss fight. I consider her a a gameplay sequence that happens to drain resources. Like you do not fight her. Okay. Um. So that was my. Th- it's like it's like the first time you encounter her when you just spend like five minutes running from her. Yeah. And closing doors and doing whatever nonsense, and then later on you find her again and you fight her. Um. So that was like we tried it, you know, three or four times each just like trying to use what resources we had to to fight and kill this thing and nothing was working consistently enough for us to even feel like we were making any kind of progress and then we we stopped and it was at that point where like we had been spending all day playing this game trying to work through it because we wouldn't have had as much time during the week to finish before the podcast and we had made decent progress up until we got to a certain point and then progress really slowed and we got to here and we were just like we're so fucking done. And then we, we stopped playing. And the more we, we like talked about it and, and looked at things, we were like, there's, we're not picking this back up. We're done. This is it. And we had bought all like before that we had decided like, or Justin had decided I'm not going to work for the trophy. I'm just going to get upgrades. So literally just gotten like all the upgrades we could, buy at that time yeah before going into that boss fight and it was still just too much yeah this kind of leads me into i want to sometimes we have in past episodes gone through like oh what was your favorite such and such moment or what was yours you know the thing that you found the most dis something this uh but for this i would actually like us to try to guess i mean for you guys well actually that might no the answer could still we might not know the answer yet um but I want to guess each other's, like, the boss or creature that we were the most creeped out or scared by. If that's something you'd be interested in. Justin can't play for me because he knows. I can guess yours. Though you have alluded to it in other yeah, conversations. Yeah, so James can also you guess. Cleo, you should guess. Uh, is it Laura? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Justin, like, specifically tried to hand me the controller at one point, and I was like, no, I've I've done a lot of other boss fights, but I just, I can't do this one. It's the way she moves, and my arachnophobia, it just was not good. And what about Mine's, Justin? Mine's right. pretty easy. Uh, I guess, uh, if you, 
I mean, you guys can try to guess, but honestly, it would be futile because I don't think I was actually scared of any of them. Yeah, I, the I, closest I, I came to being mildly bothered was the chainsaw guy. And like, realistically, <laughs> the only reason is because when you played through the first fight with him, uh-huh. and we thought you had killed him. And you went out and you're like, oh, there's a chest over here. And you stopped and you got down, you opened the chest. And then you like the way the camera moved and you moved when you got back up from taking the loot out of the chest. And he was just standing next to you about to hit you because he was not dead. (laughs) It was like it was like we had orchestrated our own jump scare. Yeah, basically. And but that is that was a jump scare that managed to actually like uh, get me. Uh, But I like, yeah, none of them. Like were like remotely bothered me. This was not the kind like we spent ninety five percent of this game laughing at how ridiculous most of it was. Like this was not the kind of horror that affected me in any way, shape, or form. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) Yeah, I think there was one point where I was like, I wouldn't call this psychological horror. I'd call this like, or yeah, it was. I wouldn't call this survival horror. I'd call this like. I don't remember. Bad surgery tension. Yeah, I think <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> like this felt more like a like a B movie than a horror film. Yeah. Sorry, Cleo. Sorry again. Yeah. I deeply apologize. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. I just feel like my soul is being criticized. Uh no, I'm right. Alright, James. Uh well, given you didn't actually play for very you only played up to like that first dude right in like the butcher type i mean yeah area. i was like mine's mine's pretty easy it's the one right at the beginning that made me quit <laughs> so <laughs> cleo's if it's not laura then it's i mean the thing is i don't know any bosses in the game past big brute guy but I would, I would guess the keeper, Safehead. I'm actually, I do find the keeper, you know, I like he's very resilient, right? Like I mean, and so I do find him creepy, and he like shows up, you know, several times. The design actually, of the creeper itself was, or the creeper, the, the design of the keeper itself was pretty creepy <laughs> in my mind. Yeah, it was really yeah, interesting. It was very when the pyramid head, right? Just appears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like there's definitely drawn comparisons to uh, Pyramid Head from Silent Hill games. Yeah, for but sure. I think. For me, it's close tie, but number one would probably be Laura, uh, okay. just because you know, as someone who watches a lot of Japanese and various Asian horror films, the long, crazy hair thing woman is yep. like you know familiar, and we're we've been conditioned to immediately be terrified of anyone who looks like Sadako. Um, but I actually, and this is gonna seem maybe a little silly, but in the Victoriano estate. Uh, when Ruvik comes out and starts kind of like chases a heavy word, but he f- strongly follows you, and then he's like a one hit kill. Yeah, stalks. Yeah, if we'll you, say stalks. He, yeah, I think stalks is a good word. He also he will teleport to you if you try to hit him. Yeah, yeah, and also like sometimes, and he will like he will teleport like for instance, if you come out of a door upstairs and you like try to head downstairs, he will like occasionally appear at the bottom of the stairs, and you have to yeah. turn around, yeah. and you don't know when that's going to happen necessarily. And the music that plays during that time is like very effective. I enjoyed hiding from him. Apparently you could run from him too. We found that out. Yeah. Like if you just ran around for long enough, you went away. Yeah, no, like it's just it's just outlasting. I I actually really liked that it like again, it weird definition of like for me. I thought that segment was really cool also. I thought Rubik overall was 
I, hard to say. You say what you will. Him as a character overall, I felt like he was used pretty well to make frightening moments. Yeah, he was uh, at least properly me. menacing antagonist who was barely present. Like they used him sparingly and smartly. Yeah, I thought. But yeah, yeah. no, like. I agree that that sequence was really good, though. I remember, again, having the luxury of just watching it. Mm-hmm. And the person who I was watching did that, where he left the room and went down the stairs and then just turned the camera think it, like to see if Rubik was back at the top of the stairs, mm-hmm. which brought him into frame right behind them at the bottom of the stairs. And it was one of those moments where I was like, ah, yeah, someone did a good job with that. <laughs> like, that was that was cool. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree. That was, I thought that was a... Again, even just watching it, like, that was a tense moment to yeah, just, like, be secondarily present for. So yeah. there's two interesting things about that sequence, both in its overall design and our play of it. Um, it So we – I lost to Ruvik a few times in that sequence where, like, he would show up and I wouldn't hide in time or I would misstep and whatever and he would kill me or I would let him kill me because I, like – I didn't feel like dealing with it or I wasn't able to get away in a good way. Um, And the final time that we played through the stuff in the mansion, he only showed, I don't think he showed up at all. And that was when I realized that in that sequence of the game, Ruvik's appearance was a hurry up. They had designed it so that if you weren't making enough forward progress through that section of the game, Ruvik would show up to scare the shit out of you either at like not, like almost as a consequence for not going fast enough. Hmm. Cause like that final time when we knew when I knew everything we had to do, except for the very last step. And I was like, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to get this painting. I'm going to get this thing for the safe. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to that. I'm going to grab that thing. And I just ran mechanically through it all. And Rubik did not appear hmm. one time. Uh, the second thing is the first time he appeared for us. Uh, we were in the mansion going around and I had done, you know, about half of the stuff you need to do. And I wasn't quite sure what to do. And we're walking across from like, if you're looking at the big heart door thing, we're walking across from the left side to the right side. I played Justin's voice of impulse a lot during the playthrough. And I was just like, Hey, see that, see that vase, break the vase, break the vase, go break that vase. (laughs) Like I did that a lot. But also everything was breakable and had stuff in it. Yeah. So like, so we're walking by and there's a giant vase and I'm like, yep. And I go over and melee the vase. The moment I break this giant urn, Rubik appeared. <laughs> the like, exact shit. moment. He's upset we're and, breaking his shit. Yeah, we start running away and we're like, oh God, we broke something important. He's really mad at us. This is, I was like, this is hilarious. And I really hope it's an intentional design thing. It's like, we're wrecking the mansion and he's really mad about it. Did you like, know? Oh. Did you, you spill grandma's the file ashes? Where he that that's his grandma's ashes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a whole plot line, <laughs> right? Yeah, clearly we missed it. So, uh, so then the second, like after, because I wasn't sure what to do, and like I didn't know you could hide from him, and I thought maybe you were supposed to fight him, and that's why he showed up. Whatever. Like so, like that time I died because I, I was just like messing around, and so then the second time when we get back in there, like the first thing we did was go break it because we wanted to see if it would happen again, and it didn't. <laughs> It's really and upsetting. Really upset about it. <laughs> oh man, I I really like Ruvik as an antagonist. Yeah, I think Ruvik is one of the better things about the game in general. I think one of the things I said about him was he seems like a guy who goes on 4chan. Yeah, like he did. He's such an asshole. Because <laughs> Ruvik is a properly menacing antagonist, but the more of his backstory you get, the like. I feel like they're trying to make him sympathetic, but he's they're just really a just kind of failing. Whitey privileged white boy. Yeah. Like, 
I don't have much to say about him other than that. I like my favorite thing though is like in later on you see kind of like these memories of when he was talking to like Dr. Jimenez in yeah. Beacon Hospital. First of all, whenever I read Beacon Hospital, I first always accidentally read Bacon Hospital. <laughs> and so I just refer to it as yep. Bacon Hospital. Um, but you see that while he was supposed like doing this research, actually this might have been from the DLC. Um, this sounds but you familiar. You see him so. like in the yeah in the hospital like where he was supposedly you know doing some research work. He's still in this like burnt up clothing with like the hood on. It's like not exactly professional clothing for like working <laughs> in an institute like that. Am I like supposed to believe that that is like his work attire? Yeah, it, I, that was I was very confused by that. It happens kind of early on. It's the first time you end up in like either the actual STEM room or like a room like it. Um, and you get like the ghost apparition of him and he's it. Leslie is in the tub and he's like, you know, he's like ruminating on his experiments and how Leslie is like a, a proper like subject for what he's trying to do with this like mind swapping stuff. And and he's just standing there in, in the like tattered, like hooded cloak or whatever. And at this point, I like I didn't even I assumed this was some like weird ghostly thing and didn't have any reason to see it as anything else. So to know that it's like what he died in or like what he was in when everything happened the way it happened. Right. However you want to like read the events of, that like led up to the actual beginning of the game. The the fact that it's what he was like actually in, I thought was a little ridiculous. Yeah, it's a bit goofy. So speaking of enemies and villains, Cleo, you had mentioned earlier that uh, there was something you wanted to say about the invisible enemies, which I'm really eager to hear because I remember that being another one of those things that were like as I was watching and then it's like, oh, they're invisible guys. I'm just like, oh, God, am I glad I didn't get to these? Because <laughs> if I had gotten through the first one, these would have done me in for sure. So I was really... I'm really interested in what you had to say about that, because I thought, as far as, like, regular enemies go, those were also pretty good. Yeah, so, like, the Haunted, I think that's, like, the official name for, like, the regular kind of zombie enemies. Yeah. Um, and then you got, like, and yeah, they are pretty, like, scary, I mean, for me, at least, when I'm, I, I suck at stealth. I'm really bad at stealth. Uh, me too. And so, I ended up, my, I, if I had to write, and I joked about this with, like, several people, but if I had to write an autobiography based on my playthrough of the evil within it would be called no ammo and no dignity because i would just like run out of because i would my strategy was get startled by something use all your ammo missing it and then like finally manage to maybe take it out but then you like alert everything else around it and they chase after you and you just have to run because you have no ammo left and so you're like (laughs) running around screaming (laughs) like trying to find a place to hide that was my like that was like comfortable like the whole first section of the game was like me doing that um but then yeah you get to the invisible enemies and like with the first your first encounter with them is like you're totally not expecting it it's just you're in this hallway in the hospital and it's really dark and there's all these like dust particles in the air right and you can kind of see and I think this was actually very, I think this was smart design. I think this part was done well. It's like that little bit of like shimmer, not because like just for arbitrary reasons, but because the physical entity is moving through the dust and the dust is being stirred up. I thought that was smart. Um, and then you get like, you know, there's a wheelchair and a stretcher and they both like move and there would be like an IV stand or whatever. And 
they'll get kind of like shifted out of the way and that's the only thing that you have telling you like there's a thing there unless you shoot it and then it becomes visible um but invisible enemies i mean like i think that's a pretty it's definitely one of my typical nightmares and i think it's like a fairly common stress dream for people in general where you're like kind of being stalked by like a creepy invisible thing and you don't exactly know where it is you just know it's following you so that like specifically really you know messed with me they were mostly just frustrating but not bad frustrating like good enemy to have to go and go against in a game like this kind of frustrating the game would have been very like i feel like justin you would have done a lot better against them if like the bullets aimed where you were aiming them <laughs> like if the bullets went where you were aiming yeah i mean i do like that the gunplay isn't perfect yeah and it it makes sense like i mean yes he's a cop and should be a pretty good shot but the things that are happening are frightening and he's under stress so like i get it to that extent um but yeah not being able to aim exactly was uh was kind of an issue cleo is there anything that you want to talk about about the ending that we wouldn't we i mean obviously we wouldn't really be able to contribute but like is there anything you want to cover yeah it's just that the ending i mean the ending pre-dlc is like fairly disappointing um, you have to play through the DLC or like watch the DLC if you want to get the full story because there's a lot of loose ends left open. Um, admittedly, I-, I need to go through all the DLC again before I can, you know, speak at length about it. But it does, you know, kind of explain certain things about like Kidman's role, for instance, because you're playing as Kidman during two of the diff- uh, the DLC uh, things, and then I think you're playing as the Keeper in the other the third dlc uh which is interesting but yeah i mean they're definitely leaving room for a sequel and i you know i am looking forward to and i think they said like you know right now they are planning to eventually start you know doing working on a sequel for it which i am happy for because i i i know the story has problems but i enjoy like i enjoy the, the stuff about like ruben and laura like I legitimately enjoyed that story, even though not like an, oh, like, feel sorry for Ruvik, like, really, he's just like a tortured soul. Like, I just thought that it was more of like an interesting origin story for Laura as a monster, because in like the role that she plays in as an entity in the kind of shared mind of Ruben and everybody else, the, the STEM system or whatever, or the just the STEM, I guess is what they call it. Um, but I thought Leslie could have probably played uh, more. I mean, he definitely plays a role in that he's kind of the MacGuffin, right? Like everyone's chasing after him and he's like the white rabbit that everyone's kind of trying to follow quite literally in some sense because he's very, very pale. Um, But yeah, there's some things that I would like to definitely see explored more in a future game um, because the ending did leave me wanting a little, but, and I also will say, that I do think the first half of the game is better than the second half. Um, it j- just takes a very different, like the tone changes a lot in the second half, right? Like the monsters get much larger. It seems to be a little bit more about like, okay, what's like the craziest, biggest thing we can like throw at you. That's completely unruly. Um, instead of kind of like these more closed off environments where you're dealing with smaller enemies, but there's more you have to like kind of figure out how to i don't know it feels a little bit more outlasty 
Not that I think Outlast is like a fantastic game, exactly, but I enjoy the first half more. I found it creepier also than like the second half where you are being like thrown around in these kind of more outlandish environments, um, including like a dungeon under a, no, actually I like the dungeon under the church stuff, but yeah, it's, it, it, I do agree with you guys that the game is a little bit all over the place. I mean, it is very much all over the place, like literally because you're being thrown into different locations that are based off of memories of the different people involved. Um, and that is something that I thought could have been explored a little bit more. It is explored somewhat in DLC, like why one of the locations is there because it relates to uh, Kidman's past. But that's also something that we can talk about a little bit more during the topic episode because it will relate to other things we have discussed in other episodes in this series. So I think that's it. Closing remarks? I'm sorry (laughs) that I (laughs) made you play something you hated. (laughs) No, don't be sorry. It's important to find things you don't like every so often agreed and also it's i think it's very important that we get more of that in here because it's rare we 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 have done we've done generally a good job of of sort of like picking things that at least one of us knows but also knows to be a not just a good example of the thing that we're talking about but a a quality like like a good thing in and of itself and it's rare that any of us feels particular, like even the things that Cleo hasn't really liked that much. Like you haven't like disliked them super heavily outside of Armada, which we all hated. I feel like, like there are things that you've had like clear problems with, but would, but like, even when we talked about recommending things, you're like, but yeah, I think like there are plenty of people who would still want to want to check this out. Whereas like with me and evil within, I'm like, listen, just, play anything else i'm glad i could have brought this experience to all of us <laughs> fitting that it would be you <laughs> but no and i i mean it when i say that i i wouldn't go so far as to say that like i i didn't i don't again with the relative definition of like um i'm glad that i at least like watched the let's play and like saw more of this again it's not my favorite thing but i also didn't viscerally dislike it I was disappointed with it in some ways. Honestly, there was that big part of me that was really hoping it was going to be like that I was going to come into this and watch through it and just be like, oh, yeah, like I could see this being like the rough version of something that ends up being like the like this really great like second coming of like the the Resident Evil glory days. Right. Even if that's not something that appeals to me as someone who's just like interested in games and stuff, I feel like I feel that lack indirectly, Mm -hmm. you know. Like you wouldn't play the games, but the fact that those games are not part of the larger, like, meta narrative of gaming, yeah. right, is is obvious. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's... listen, if they're if like you know, Bethesda has said that they believe the first one sold well enough to justify a sequel, and then they won't talk about active development projects, blah blah blah, that stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, but this, like, this is the publisher that announced Fallout Four in the same year that they released it, so. Yeah. Um. Like, could very, like, it, it's totally possible that an Evil Within 2 takes takes the interesting stuff from this and, and creates something new and fresh. And and it does manage an even wider appeal than the first one did. And we do see that second coming. And I kind of hope it happens. Yeah. Like, as, as much as I disliked this game, I'm still mildly interested in an Evil Within 2. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's very telling, actually. I'm just thinking of reflecting on what we've covered in this episode. And we have talked very little about 
you know, the main characters. I mean, we talked about Ruvik a little bit and talked about, like, about a lot of the enemies and stuff. But we haven't talked about, like, Sebastian Castellanos. We haven't talked about Julie Kidman that much. We haven't even mentioned Joseph's name. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we played two-thirds of the game, and none of... And so, admittedly, we didn't make it all the way to the end, and we didn't play the DLC, but none of them felt like anything larger than cardboard cutouts. Like, even... They tried to make Castellanos this this like sympathetic figure and it doesn't matter though because none of his tragic backstory like bleeds into the the world as up to where we saw right and it i mean it's all just kind of like he he's just the cop with a tragic backstory who's divorced from his wife like it's it's uninspired and dull kidman is the more interesting character um, but unfortunately, that does not really, that's not revealed until the DLC. Right. And I don't really care about it, yeah. to be honest. I mean, it's still part of the story. It's worth knowing. Yeah, no, it's just like, if if none of them are interesting unless you play DLC, it's not really that great of a decision. Like a, it, like James was saying before, like, I don't know. It It feels like, it feels like there was an opportunity to to see the effects of any of the three police officers in the world, since apparently it's constructed from a shared headspace. But as far as I'm aware, that didn't happen. And Cleo, you can tell me if it happens later on, but I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you see like Julie Kidman's past a little, I mean, you see like, you know, she, I can't remember. I, I'm going to butcher it if I try to read, you know, talk about the details of it, but, um, the like how she got involved in all of this and like what her true motives are. You get to see like that stuff again, maybe not the clearest storytelling. Um, and it sh- definitely should have been brought up more in the actual game itself. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. If you, I, again, it's like, it's not going to save the whole experience. Cause you know, you don't want to go through an entire game and have a miserable time just to like play some and like have the story not be there enough. Like you don't want to have everything have to be put together by the DLC. Yeah. I mean, I just like, if you want me to care about the main characters, then why don't you show me what the effect of their mind merging with Rubix is? Like if you're walking through everybody else's memories, why isn't Sebastian Cast- uh Castellanos. Castellanos? Castellanos, yeah. Why isn't Sebastian Castellanos's like dead daughter showing up anywhere? Why aren't you why aren't we needing to untangle who is Laura and who is his daughter since both of them died in fires? Like, why isn't the story exploring this rich and fertile ground? Let me read you. I have the art book for the Evil Thin right here, which has a lot of notes in it that are absolutely Oh, not so to really to get the full story out. I needed to also read the art book. <laughs> But except for the story as presented by the art book is completely different from how the game ended up. But let me read you a little snippet about Joseph Oda, as soon as I can find him, who looks a lot like, in some of this early concept art, like Stephen Yun from The Walking Dead. Um, Here we go. Joseph Oda is from Toronto, a second-generation Japanese-Canadian. His family is descended from ninjas. His glasses are a keepsake from his grandfather. There was something special about his glasses. For breakfast, he eats buttered toast with nori. He only speaks a little Japanese. I wanted to make a Joseph Stealth Ninja DLC based on Dishonored System and call it Disodored. Ah! That. 
was that noise? That's wow. amazing. James the Dolphin. <laughs> I wanted to make Joseph Oda's Stealth Ninja DLC based on the Dishonored system and call it Dishoda. That's too good. I mean, that's amazing. But can was... we just talk about Pterodactyl James over here? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make a Pterodactyl James DLC. Ah. I will no, say I really no. did. I'd like We'll call it Hillips because the, the P is now. silent. It's really, I do like some of the, I like the creature design for a lot of the creatures. I mean, I love Laura's design. I know like the, the base of it is fairly stereotypical Japanese horror, but I, there was great. enough of a twist on it that I, yeah. And like, for instance, like if you look at her, she's wearing shoes, like she's all like arms and shit and hair, but then she's also wearing shoes on her feet. Um, And then I thought the environments were... Like, I really liked the Victoriano estate. Um, even if it was a little generic, I like creepy mansions. I'm a fan. And I then, was kind of into the estate and the the brain stabbing. I thought yeah. it was, like, visceral in an, in an interesting way for what this game was trying to do. And I thought, like, the fucked up looking city towards the end was kind of cool. Like, you know, very Inception-y. Um, but, yeah, I... I I, I like, and now I'm looking through, like, you know, the concept art, and I'm remembering that I did, you know, find the environments uh, compelling. Yeah, I think that that, I think that goes a lot with what we were saying earlier about the, the sound design. Like, I feel like overall, it, say, gameplay design, controversial, but I, my understanding is that everyone can kind of agree that it, it looked good, it sounded good, like the engineering maybe less yeah. so, but, like, it certainly created a great atmosphere and we talked we had that whole conversation about the the save rooms and just the effects that that had and that sort of creepy atmosphere and ambiance that it created i i know that even before i played this i was like very well aware of the game's aesthetics right and a lot of the visual themes that it had just because i felt like they did a really good job of conveying that in even just the promotional artwork right like they've got it had a really good sense of what it wanted to be aesthetically and i i thought that it delivered on that really well yeah but then even like with the creepiness factor i know you know J uh justin and corinne you guys weren't like you know super scared of anything but i found the enemy design even right from the beginning to be you know scary enough that i was making a fool out of myself and i'm really glad nobody saw me playing the game because i had no dignity at all while playing and had to my strategy for the first boss fight which is I think his official name is the sadist. It's the guy with the chainsaw mm. um, in that kind of like villagey area. Um, is that I, cause I found him like, at, again, sound design. I thought his like sound design and also his animation was like effectively intimidating, at least to me. Like he seemed genuinely filled with rage and he had a fucking giant chainsaw. Hey, you know what I didn't like? I didn't like how the generator you turn on at one point sounded exactly like a chainsaw. I also didn't like that he had, when he was chained up in the in the village, he had exactly three grunting sounds. To the point where I was, like, making the sounds along with him because mm -hmm. we'd been listening to them for so long and could pretty much perfectly predict what he was going to do. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like, I objectively understand, like, maybe not, you know, best boss design, but for me in the moment, it was effective. And, like, to the point where, like, my whole strategy was throw grenades at him from a distance, shoot him with the harpoons, like, from a distance, and then run away 
and never shoot him because you're so busy running away. And then I went up. I just got too freaked out. And I, I died a few times, so I decided instead of, like, listening to any of the sound design stuff, because I was just going to, like, go off of things visually, um, I blasted uh, Hold the Line by Toto on repeat <laughs> off my computer <laughs> while playing. Um, and then I ran up to, like, there's, like, a little bit of a watchtower. So I ran up the watchtower and threw grenades off of it even though this is not like it was not designed for this it's like you're not supposed to be able to aim at anybody from there pretty much like he got stuck he like the, the designers obviously didn't think anyone was going to be this much of a coward um <laughs> but i was up at the tower like trying to angle grenades and harpoons in a way that they were just totally not meant to like no one was supposed to be able to fire anything from there and the guy got stuck in like a little pit of glass down below for a little bit so i was just throwing grenades into it <laughs> until finally he like disappeared and i had to go down and find him with Toto still blasting. Uh, and that was how I got through that boss fight. Nice. Hey, survival horror, right? You survived. <laughs> My dignity did not. So, All right, on that note. <laughs> yeah. So that's been, that has been the evil within. Um, next up, it's our topic episode where I guess we're going to probably have way more of those conversations about the relations between Jacob La- Jacob's Ladder and the evil within that I'm really excited to get to because... I think a lot of that uh, successful aesthetic that you get from this, there, I think there are several things that very clearly seem to be, have been pulled or inspired from Jacob's Ladder. I think Mikami's even said up front that he is a big fan. Uh, so I'm really excited to get into that and talk about all these things together and psychological horror as a whole. After that, we're going into sci-fi noir with Altered Carbon, Blade Runner, and Gemini Rue. And until then, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is to tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rwppodcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rwppodcast. Check out our Tumblr at rwppodcast.tumblr.com. And look out for our game streams on Twitch at twitch.tv slash readwatchplay. Oh, demon dick.